Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing along Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we are in part six of seven parts. And for those that may be listening for the first time, uh, all of the notes and previous recordings for all of these studies are available online at our website, new-life-ministries.org. And you can download both the notes and the audio recordings there. Um, we have come to the second of seven nations that we are looking at that the Israelites needed to drive out of Canaan. God brought them out with a mighty outstretched arm. He, he brought them out of bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt. But the second phase of his program was to take them in. The Bible says he brought them out so he could take them in. The taking in part is what we want to begin to examine more and more closely now. He wanted to take them in to a whole different land, a whole different existence in the land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, the promised land, a place where God's grace would provide everything that they needed. But there was one catch, if I can use that word lightly, and God told them about this from the very beginning, that when they got to the promised land, there were going to be seven wicked nations who were already making their home there who needed to be defeated and driven out. And God assured them repeatedly that even though they were great and tall and mighty nations, He was going to destroy them, and all the Israelites needed to do was to trust Him and follow His directions. And of course, they did not do that. The majority of them did not believe, and they disobeyed, and we saw in the previous part that they were all destroyed in the wilderness. But now a new generation has been raised up, and under Joshua's command, they've crossed the River Jordan, they've gone into the Promised Land, and we're looking one by one at these seven nations that are listed in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, we're not going to read them again tonight, but you'll find all that in your outline. We looked at the Canaanites as representing the love of money or the love of the world. And we began last time, and I want to move right into it, looking at the second nation, the Amorites. And I think it was very clear, if you were with us last week, that the Amorites speak directly of a spirit of pride. They lived in the hill country. Their very name means in Hebrew publicity, prominence, or a mountaineer. They, they dwelled in high places. And throughout the Bible, that whole metaphor of living in high places, dwelling on high, is often representative of a spirit of pride, arrogance, we even use the word high-minded to represent that. And after last week's study, uh, someone sent me a message saying, Pastor Wayne, you were speaking directly to me. Everything you were saying was like it was just for me. And I said, well, truth be told, everything was just for me too. 
and I think this is just for all of us, because God knows what a common and pervasive problem this thing of pride is. And that's why there's so much in the scriptures about it. And it's interesting that one of the verses that we kicked this whole study off with, way back in Genesis 15, where God appeared to Abraham and told him 400 years ahead of time how this was all going to play out, how his descendants were going to go down into a strange land. God didn't identify the country at that time, but we now know it's Egypt. He told Abraham further they would be slaves in that land. God would finally bring them out, but only when the sin of the Amorites reached its fullness or its perfection. The sin of the Amorites. And we've looked at length at the sins of these different nations. They were wicked. They were uh, idolatrous. They were fierce nations. Many of them practiced human sacrifices. Uh, many of them were very arrogant, and they refused to worship God, and instead they worshiped all kinds of strange and false gods. And the Amorites were certainly one of those nations uh, well known for their sins and for their idolatry. Now, we finished last time after identifying what the Amorites represent, that they do indeed represent pride. Uh, we tried to identify and define what exactly is pride. And I have found that the better you understand pride, the better you can begin to understand what God means when he's talking about humility or being humble. We sometimes think that being humble is acting a certain way, but really in our mind and in our hearts, we know we're the greatest thing on the earth. That is not true humility. And I want to go through this definition again, because I think it's important moving forward. Pride is a very strong form of deception. When you and I become proud, understand tonight, we have been deceived. And we, we are proud quite often, which would indicate there's still some areas of deception in our lives that God is trying to deal with. Pride is a strong form of deception in which we think more highly of, their, of ourselves than we ought to, or more highly of ourselves than we actually are. So therein enters the deception. I think I'm something that I'm not. And we actually come to believe that lie about ourselves. And the more arrogant and the more proud a person becomes, the more deceived they are. And let, let's go through three verses that we ended with last time, once again, to sort of emphasize this. Romans 12 and verse 3. Paul says, By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed 
to each of you. So, this involves our whole thought process. The Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. Our attitudes uh, really determine a lot about our whole life. And we are instructed to take control of our thoughts. We are not to be held hostage by our thoughts. We are to take dominion over our thoughts. And here Paul is saying, don't think this way. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And as we study the scriptures, no one knows human nature better than God. And God has a lot to say in his word about human nature. There are direct scripture references, and there are also numerous stories and characters in the Bible that reveal certain things to us about human nature. And the better we become familiar with that, the better we can recognize right and wrong thought patterns in our minds and take control of those negative thoughts, proud thoughts, high thoughts, and pull them down. That's what the Bible says we should do with any thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of God and Christ. Along with that, in Obadiah, verse 3, there's just one chapter in Obadiah, this is the basis for the definition that I've given you for pride. It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And notice a couple things about the scripture. It doesn't directly say the devil deceived you, or the devil made you do it. Your own heart has deceived you. Your own heart will play tricks on you. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked, but it's also deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So a lot of times we don't even know or understand our own heart, and it's playing tricks on us, and if we're not careful, it can deceive us. It begins to whisper little things to us like, wow, you're really good looking, or you're really smart, or you're the best singer in the church, and on and on it goes. And if we start listening to that voice, we begin to drink in that poison called pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights. Notice again, dwelling on the heights is synonymous with pride here. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? That kind of an arrogant defiance. Nobody can touch me. Nobody can equal me. And here's the best verse of all. And if you take these three and put them together, I think you'll see that this definition is very much biblical, that pride is a form of deception. Galatians 3, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, verse 3. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. If anyone thinks, there's that word again, thinks. If anyone thinks he is something, well, Come on, we all think we're something, right? Well, 
If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So, Paul takes this even a step further and basically says, the minute you and I think we're anything, we're deceived. Because the reality of it is, we're nothing. And true humility begins to happen in your life and mine when we come to grips with who we really are. Paul, you can tell from his writings, he spent long hours working on this. He was a great apostle. He had great revelation. But he also realized he was the chief of sinners. There was no good thing in him. He understood, in reality, he was nothing. Just a clay pot, a vessel that God chose and decided to use in a certain way. And he realized that any good thing springing forth from his life had come from God, and therefore all the praise and all the glory went back to God and not to Paul. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Ouch. All right. Let's move on to some new ground here. We're on page 100, if you're following in the notes. And basically, God knowing the human tendency to become proud, to become high-minded, to become arrogant, he has basically spelled out in the scriptures two choices that you and I have. Two courses of action, if you will. The two choices are simple. We either humble ourselves or wait for God to humble us. One or the other will ultimately happen. We either take action ourselves, we're proactive, and because we understand the scriptures, and because we understand this human tendency, we take the initiative, we're proactive in humbling ourselves. That's the preferred choice. If we don't do that, there are numerous examples in the Bible where God had to step in and humble people. Uh, It is never pleasant, and I'm speaking from personal experience. It is never pleasant when God has to come and humble you. It's difficult to humble ourselves, but if you choose to wait for God to humble you, it can be excruciatingly painful. And we're, we're going to look at just a couple of examples. The Bible's full of them. But I'm going to pick out a few extreme examples of individuals, or in some cases even nations, that went on in their pride and their arrogance, refusing to humble themselves, and in the end, God had to humble them. This nation is an example. The United States of America is a nation that has continued on for long decades now in arrogance, in pride, refusing 
to humble herself, going against law after law after law of God, thinking that everything's okay. We're rich, we're powerful, <clears throat> we're the strongest nation on the earth, nothing bad can ever happen to us. Oh, really? Maybe we should take a second look at some scriptures. God is very clear, any nation, any nation that refuses to humble itself will ultimately be brought down, humbled by God. And when God has to humble an individual, a city, a church, a nation, or whatever group you may be thinking about, it's not pretty. And I want to show you in one scripture where I believe Jesus presents these two options, these two choices, either humble ourselves or wait for God to humble us. Matthew 21, from verse 42 to 44, 42 to 44. And he's actually speaking to the nation of Israel that at this time was very arrogant, very proud, and Jesus began to warn them that time was coming when God was going to flatten them if they refused to humble themselves. Matthew 21, from verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Notice carefully verse 44. <clears throat> Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The stone that he's referring to is himself. Very clear. The context from verse 42, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, the chief cornerstone. Anyone who falls on the stone, I think that's speaking about when we humble ourselves, we fall on Jesus, will be broken to pieces. God breaks us. But anyone on whom the stone falls, that's a whole different deal. When the stone falls on you, you will be crushed. So there's a choice that we can make. We either run to Jesus, fall on him, and humble ourselves, or take our chances and wait for him to fall on us. The problem is, if you wait for the stone to fall on you, you will be crushed. In Second Chronicles 26, and actually if you read through Kings and Chronicles, it starts to sound like a broken record, because you find a number of instances that are similar to the one we're going to read, where God raises up a man to be king. In the beginning, he's humble, he seeks God, he does everything that God tells him to do, God blesses him, 
God prospers him, the kingdom grows, he defeats all of his enemies, and he becomes very, very powerful. When he becomes powerful, he also becomes proud and begins to neglect the law of God, begins to refuse to humble himself before God, despite warnings that the Lord may be sending through prophets, and ultimately God has to come and humble him. In many cases, literally, with fatal consequences. Second Chronicles 26, uh, we'll read about one of the kings of Judah, King Uzziah. In his early days, he was a good king, a great king. He did a lot of great things, and God blessed him and honored him because of that. But in his latter days, he became proud. From verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26, 16. And we talked about this last week. This is the problem. God wants to bless us. He wants to prosper us. He wants to use us. He wants to give us glory. But so often, as was the case with Lucifer, that beauty and glory is the very thing that corrupts us. We become proud and we destroy ourselves. Such was the case with Uzziah. But after Uzziah became powerful, please note those words, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Oh boy, I could say a lot about that one. God wants to give us power. God wants us to be powerful. He wants us to be successful. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to be anointed, full of wisdom, etc., etc. But hopefully we're not going to repeat Isaiah, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Uzziah's story. And after that happens, we become proud. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That pertained only to the priests. He was not a priest, he was a king. There was a very clear line drawn between kings and priests in the Old Testament. And you couldn't cross that line just because you were powerful, just because you were king, just because you thought you knew more. You could not cross that line and begin to function as a priest. That's what Uzziah did. Verse 17. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests... <laughs> Eighty other courageous priests. Man, they must have really scared this man. He was mighty and powerful. So here come 81 priests of the Lord to confront King Uzziah. Verse 18. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. 
leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. You see, even in Israel, there were checks and balances. The king didn't have absolute power. When it pertained to things of the tabernacle, the temple, and the priesthood, the priests had authority over the king. And they're telling him what to do and what not to do now. And after their lecture and their warning, leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Verse 19, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. He had a chance right there to humble himself and say, you guys are right. I crossed the line. I need to get out of here. I need to humble myself. Please pray for me. Please offer a sacrifice for me. I want to get my heart right with God. But instead, he kept getting stronger in his pride. He became angry, raged at the priests, and God smote him down with leprosy. And that was how his life ended. Very pathetic ending for a powerful, powerful king. All because of one thing, his pride. Let's turn to another rather lengthy passage. This makes me shiver and tremble every time I read it. And it should. It should make all of us feel that way. Isaiah 2 and verses 8 down to verse 22. Isaiah 2, starting with verse 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Remember we said there are two choices. Humble yourself, or wait to be humbled by God. In this case, the Israelites, the people of God, were not willing to humble themselves. They'd become very proud and very arrogant, and so God is telling them, you're going to be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted. In that day, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. 
The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? You know, as time goes on and I'm watching the the spiritual and even the political climate in this nation and many other nations of the world, despite the prophet's cries, despite the warnings from God's word, I see people becoming more and more entrenched in their arrogance and in their pride, and especially as a nation. I'm I'm not so sure... Uh, I tend to agree with a number of others that think this nation has actually crossed the line, that there's no return now. We have thumbed our nose at God with such arrogance, with legalizing abortion, legalizing marijuana, legalizing homosexual perverse marriage, and I could go on and on with the list. And it's done in an arrogant way parading our sins in the streets, almost thumbing our nose at God, daring Him to come and do something. And the word I keep here resonating in my spirit ever since June or July, whenever this Supreme Court decision came down, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And if we go on sowing, this arrogant, defiant, you know, this spirit of haughtiness before God. God has to bring judgment. He will humble this nation. And it says here very clearly, the Lord Almighty has a day in store. I don't know when that day is coming, but look out when it does. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, they will be humbled. You know, the Lord showed us a few weeks ago just a few little tremors. You know, sometimes you get little tremors before a real earthquake comes. This wasn't the real earthquake. This wasn't the real shaking yet. But God showed us how, in just a couple of days, He can bring down the stock market He can bring this whole nation down financially in one day. Literally in one day, he could bring this whole place down. And yet, we go on in our pride, in our arrogance, um, refusing to humble before a living God. Now I'm speaking on a national sense. Hopefully you and I are getting the message, and we are not waiting for God to humble us, but we are, like Ezra and Daniel, humbling ourselves and even humbling ourselves on behalf of the nation. And if you if you notice the way they prayed and interceded, they went before God on behalf of all the people, and we should be doing the same. But there does come a time where, despite all of that, God ultimately lowers the boom. As he did on Israel and Judah, he did allow the destruction of Jerusalem, 
and the death of many, many Israelites, and the remnant carried as captives and exiles into Babylon for 70 years. So, as I mentioned earlier, when you wait for God to humble you, it's not pretty. It's not pleasant. And speaking of Babylon and the exile of the Israelites, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in their company. Uh, Seventy long years they spent in exile because of the pride and the arrogance of Israel. And of course, during that time, we read in the book of Daniel about King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, he was so filled with pride and arrogance. And you see some of the politicians in our day, the way they boast and brag and make their arrogant speeches as if nothing or no one can touch them. Well, they seem to forget there's a living God who can touch them and can humble them at any time. King Nebuchadnezzar was arguably the most powerful man on the face of the earth. After he raided Jerusalem destroyed the whole city, burned it to the ground, put to death the majority of the Israelites, and then took some of the best young men back to Babylon to be in his service. He became more and more proud and arrogant to the point that even when he was warned in a dream, he refused to humble himself. And you can read in Daniel 4 the graphic details of how God humbled this man. Oh boy. He was completely out of his mind. An insane, wild man for seven years because of his pride. And at the end of that seven years, he learned his lesson. And here's what he had to say after that whole seven-year ordeal of being humbled by God. Daniel 4, verse 37. I would suggest reading the whole chapter to see in much greater detail how God dealt with this man. But it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven. Whoa! This is the same dude that destroyed Jerusalem. Now he's praising God. He's glorifying the King of Heaven because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And here in one sentence is what he learned in those seven long years. Those who walk in pride, he, God, is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And believe you me, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking from personal experience. He went through the grinder. He knew what it was to be crushed by God, brought low, real low by God. And despite being warned a year ahead of time in a dream, he went on in his pride, went on in his pride, refused to humble himself, so God had to humble him. And right up to the last day, 
He was still boasting and bragging that his kingdom was the most powerful and glorious kingdom on the face of the earth. And God reduced him literally to an insane beast out in the field for seven years until he acknowledged God as his sovereign king and ruler. Jesus often spoke about this subject in the New Testament. And some of the parables that you read throughout the Gospels, they all deal with this very thing of pride and either humble yourself or wait to be humbled. Look in Luke chapter 14 and we'll read from 7 to 11. Luke chapter 14, from 7 to 11. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. That's interesting. He noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. You know, over the years, I've almost had to laugh on some occasions, uh, at certain people, they they just always seem to gravitate toward the famous ones, the rich ones, the ones who are at the top of the food chain. They want to sit next to them. They want to chum up to them. They want to kiss up to them. They They feel that if they can somehow mingle with the high and mighty, that it'll rub off on them. And Jesus noticed that. And noticing how some of these people picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so... The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. That's humbling yourself. That's not waiting to be humbled. This is taking initiative, being proactive, Look for the lowest place and take it. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There you find very clearly these two choices. We either keep exalting ourselves and wait to be humbled by God, or we choose to humble ourselves and then let God lift us up. Obviously, the second choice is far better. And again, if we understand the nature of pride, that it's a form of deception, we must earnestly pray God, help me to see who I really am. 
let me not think more highly of myself. And if there is any good thing going on in my life, it's your grace. It's your gift. It's your Holy Spirit in my life. And let me not try to grab the honor and the glory for myself. Now, uh, I know we're not going to be able to finish this tonight, but let me at least give sort of a road map of where we're going. Um, we're going to look at seven steps to overcome pride. I remember many years ago, I had been invited to India for a couple of months where I was traveling around to different conventions and preaching and also spending some time with groups of young ministers who had come for training. They were preparing to be pastors and missionaries, etc. And I'll never forget one morning I was speaking to a group of about a hundred of these young uh, ministers and future pastors. And I told them, this morning I'm going to give you the seven steps to reach Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the highest peak in all of God's kingdom. I'm going to give you the secret. And everybody got out their notebook and they got their pens ready. Seven steps to reach Mount Zion. And I gave them step one, humble yourself. Okay? Step two, humble yourself. Step three, humble yourself. Step four, step five, and you get the picture. The only way we're going anywhere up with God is to keep going down in our estimation of ourselves. Humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. And so really, what I'm going to do this week and next week is give you seven steps to overcome pride, and each one of them begins with the same words, humble yourself. But we're going to look at specific ways, specific areas of our life where we can practically put this into practice. How do I humble myself? What does that mean? And as I mentioned earlier, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that really I know I'm the smartest, I'm the best guy around here, but i got to pretend and sort of act humble. Maybe stoop over a little bit and be soft-spoken and, and I, I don't know, act humble, whatever that means. That's a bunch of garbage. We don't act humble. We humble ourselves. And the first one I want to look at in this list is entitled, Humble Yourself, Submit to God, and to Others. Hmm. Maybe the submit to God part doesn't sound too bad, but I don't know about the submitting to other people. Let's look at it. James 4, from verse 6 to 10. But He, God, gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. <clears throat> so that's the first part of this. Humble yourself and submit to God. Submit to God because if you don't, God's going to oppose you. You're going to feel like you're always going up against a brick wall. Something's always resisting you. Somebody's always stiff-arming you. And it's God. Bible's very clear. God stiff-arms the proud. He resists them. He pushes them back. He pushes them away. But if you submit yourself to God first, then you can begin to resist the devil. Then you can begin to draw near to God, and God draws near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. But a companion passage that almost sounds the same, but it's different, is found in 1 Peter. This was James 4 we just read from. Now let's look at 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. 1 Peter 5, 5 through verse 9. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. It almost sounds identical to James, except for this extra ingredient. Submit yourselves to your elders. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. From verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You know, I have found that God will test you, and he will test me on this, we can say all kinds of flowery things. Oh, I'm surrendered to God. I've submitted my life to the Lord. I do whatever God tells me. And I only listen to God. I don't listen to man. I only submit to God. I'm already on high alert when I hear that kind of a speech. Because what that, what's that, what that is telling me is that person has already deceived themselves. If we can't submit to people in authority that God placed over us. I'm emphasizing people whom God placed over us in different kinds of authorities. Maybe parents. Maybe a husband. Maybe a teacher. Maybe a police officer. Maybe the government. Maybe your pastor. Maybe the board of elders in your church. Maybe an older believer who has more wisdom and experience than you. <clears throat> 
God will test us to see if we're truly submitted to Him, then we can also submit to others whom God places in our path. A person who is truly in submission to others is teachable, they're correctable, and they value the views and opinions of others. You know, it's very sad. I know some very gifted and talented people. I emphasize that. They're very gifted, very talented, but they're going nowhere in their spiritual journey because they're what I call spiritual know-it-alls. Nobody can teach them anything. No one can correct them. No one can tell them anything. They've already got all the revelation they need. They know the Bible better than anyone else. And whenever anyone tries to gently give them counsel or maybe some correction, they reject it. And this goes on year after year after year. And sadly, you may see them 20 years from now and they're in the same state. They've gone nowhere in their spiritual life. Can't submit to a pastor. Can't join a church. Can't submit to counsel when wise counsel is given to them. And, you know, this is becoming more and more prevalent in our day and in our culture. Everybody's a know-it-all. Everybody is their own boss. Nobody can tell them anything because they already know it all. Our young people, especially, they go, to, they go to college and they come home. They know everything about everything. They can't be taught anything. They can't be told anything. They can't be counseled anything. It's a very dangerous place to be. And we start to hit some brick walls and have some serious falls. And little by little, hopefully, we begin to learn to humble ourselves. But this thing of learning how to be in proper relationship to God-ordained authority. I'm not talking about men trying to do stuff in our lives. I'm talking about people who were placed there by God. And look at what's happening in our culture now with the, the spirit of lawlessness that has risen up against people in authority. For instance, police officers. Yes, maybe once in a while there's a bad apple in the police force, but that in no way justifies what we're seeing now. People chanting death to the cops, shooting cops right and left now with no impunity. It's a spirit that has taken over the land. It's a spirit of lawlessness and total disrespect and total disregard for authority that was placed there by God to maintain order in our society. And if this spirit goes on unchecked, we're going to break down as a culture into total anarchy. We will have total lawlessness, total anarchy, and we're already seeing uh, a pretty good representation of that right here in our own backyard in the city of Baltimore. The place has gone berserk. Murders right and left. Total disregard for any rule of law or authority. And that spirit can filter down into the church also, where 
if a Sunday school teacher or an elder or a pastor tries to gently correct us, give us some counsel, some advice on our life, and we bristle up and say, who's he think he is telling me what to do? I already know the Bible. I already know what I'm supposed to do. And we fly off in anger, and we're going to destroy ourselves if we continue down that path. Humble yourself, first of all, yes, to God, but also before others. Learn how to submit to people. Learn how to submit to one another. Learn how to respect the anointing that's upon other people's lives. And when they're ministering, submit to that anointing. Allow that anointing to teach you. We're, we're not meant to be a one-man band. Uh, God never intended that for anyone. And we are dependent on one another, and we should learn to respect one another, submit to one another. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody comes along and gives you counsel that's contrary to the Word of God. No, you don't obey that counsel. You obey good counsel that's given in line with Scripture and given in the Spirit of Christ. I'm not talking about somebody that comes along and tries to tell you to do something evil or sinful. No, absolutely not. But submitting to those whom God places over us. There are many, many more scriptures on that. I'm not going to go into the details on that, but uh, Hebrews 13 addresses it, 1 Thessalonians 5. There are a lot of other places where you can see uh, scriptures speaking very explicitly about the need for us to recognize spiritual authority in the church. Whom has God placed over you as your pastor, your elder, the person to whom uh, you are submitting, and the person who will give an account for your life before God. And I often tell people, if they can't take correction and they can't be counseled, I tell them very plainly, I'm not your pastor. I mean, you're a nice person, and I'm not being mean to you, but I'm not your pastor. So understand, uh, you're on your own. You're your own pastor. But Hebrews 13 says that we should obey them that have the rule over us so that they can do their work with joy and give an account to God for your soul. All right, I'm going to introduce the second of these seven steps, but we're not going to get very deep into it tonight, and we'll pick it up here the next time. The second step, again, is humble yourself. And this time, what we're going to look at is boast in the Lord, not about yourself. You know, God created us to be boasters. We're all boastful. You just have to learn how to direct your boasting. The Bible says you can boast all day long. Unfortunately, many people boast about themselves. How rich they are, how famous they are all of their accomplishments, how many degrees they have after their name, their title at the job, and on and on and on. They go boasting, boasting, boasting. But the Bible says we can boast in the Lord always. But 
there's a verse we already read in connection with the Canaanites, and it comes up again here, because remember, these two nations are related. 1 John 2, I'm going to read verses 15 and 16 from the New American Standard. Uh, We already studied this in the context of not loving the world, but notice something else that's mentioned here. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and here's what I want you to see, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Remember, the Amorites were one of the descendants of the Canaanites. So, this is a natural offshoot of that Canaanite spirit. It's the boastful spirit. Boastful pride of life. What I have, what I've done, what I know. And we can go on and on and on boasting in our own pride. And this tendency to boast, God knows we all have it. We just need to learn how to redirect it away from ourselves and boast in the Lord. Okay, we're going to close it there for tonight. Next time we're going to look much more carefully. How do I practically do that? How can I stop boasting about myself and start boasting about God. And I'm going to be honest with you, I love to brag. It comes very naturally with me, and I used to be a real braggart. Brag about this and that, what I own, what I've done, my accomplishments, and this, that, and the other. Now I just try to redirect it and boast about what God's done. Boast about the cross, boast about Jesus, boast about the power of God, the wisdom of God, boast about the miracles that God has done. You can still boast, and that's wholesome and holy. And it doesn't corrupt you and make you proud. It keeps you humble because you're directing all the glory to God. Let's pray tonight. Father God, in the name of Jesus, you know our natural human tendency is always to spiral downward into the the prison, the, the toxin of pride and arrogance and boasting. And Lord, knowing that, you have warned us repeatedly in Scripture to humble ourselves. Because before a fall, pride always comes. And Lord, you would prefer that we humble ourselves so you can lift us up and pour favor upon us rather than have to humble us the way you did Israel, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Uzziah, and so many others that are mentioned in the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and let the Spirit of truth work deep down inside of us, that we would have an accurate view of ourselves. We would understand who we are, and who you are. Lord, that we are nothing, and you are everything. And God, 
you deserve all of the glory, and you're trying to teach us now how to boast in you, to boast about the great things of God, to get out there and tell the nations about the greatness of our God. Father, I pray for each and every one participating in this study tonight. Lord, that by your Spirit and by your grace, you would help us daily, moment by moment, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And Lord, what a perfect and beautiful example we have before us in the life of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came here in the likeness of sinful human flesh, but emptied himself, humbled himself, and kept humbling himself all the way to the cross. Help us to have that same spirit of humility in our hearts and in our minds. God, you want to offer great things to us, great power, great prosperity, great favor, but Lord, you will only do it for the humble. You oppose the proud, you give grace and favor to the humble. Lord, I pray that you would work that spirit more and more into each one of our lives, and we'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.